I'd like to um, go on with uh, what we were sharing on Friday. I said I would. Um, many, many uh, people are messed up because they get taught wrong. And if you're taught wrong, you believe wrong. And if you believe wrong, you end up in delusion. And um, so I was talking about the fact that there is no doubt that when a man is born again, he is baptized by one spirit into one body. And if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you cannot be born again. It is impossible. Uh, and the new covenant started on the day of Pentecost, and it is clear from Scripture... You remember on the day of Pentecost, uh, which happens in Acts chapter 2, if you turn there, Acts chapter 2 in a good authorized version, um, you will find when the day of Pentecost was fully come. You know, it didn't happen one second before, nor one second after. It was when it was fully come. They're all with one accord in one place. Verse 5, you know, they, oh, let's say verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, and as I want to repeat from Friday, just to put you in the position where you understand, uh, this was the initiation into the fullness of the Spirit and there is no biblical base in theology for suggesting that tongues is initial evidence. Uh, apart from the fact that this was a miraculous manifestation that happened, I don't know of any other time where tongues of fire have appeared on the heads of people that can be verified, but that happened on this occasion. It did not happen on the occasion when it was open to the Gentiles, in Cornelius's household, and you cannot make a doctrine of one scripture. Uh, so don't somehow think that tongues is necessarily a sign of the reality of life. Uh, the reality of life is a changed life, the life of Christ in you. You must be born again. Now, it's very interesting to note that it says in verse 5, there were dwelling at Jerusalem devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now the first birthing of people into life was devout men. These weren't men off the street, these weren't men who were living any old life, these were men who were religious men, men who were brought up in their faith, and they were devout men. And you'll find that when Peter instructs them in verse 37, when they heard what Peter said, that Jesus Christ, they were responsible for, uh, their sin was responsible for him being taken and crucified, and he'd risen from the dead and he'd ascended into, his, into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and 
They, Peter used scriptures to explain it. Now when they heard this in verse 37, they were pricked in their heart. Let me explain something to you. Unless a man is convinced of the Holy Ghost, you waste your breath trying to convince them. You, it is not a philosophy we believe. It is the reality of God. If God the Holy Spirit doesn't convince a man of sin, you are wasting your time trying to get them to have an experience of God. And there is little conviction of sin because there is little preaching about the necessity of a changed life. And that is the curse of the church. Today, people don't point out, it's not the devil that's your problem, it's not demons that are your problem, it's sin that's the problem. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sin. And that is no longer preached because it offends people. There is confrontation necessary for the preaching of the gospel. When Peter was there, he confronted them. It's you who with wicked hands have taken the Son of God. You've crucified him. You're responsible. Your sin is responsible. Now these are devout men out of every nation. And Peter presses the point home, you are responsible. The modern day version is, it's not your fault, it is your fault. The moment you try and justify yourself, you show that it's not the Holy Ghost working in you, it's just a humanistic ideal. When God the Holy Ghost works, a man ceases to say, oh well, it's not my fault, you know, and you can excuse your behavior a hundred ways. The truth is, you are a sinner. And you need salvation. And these devout and holy men out of every nation, they were pressed to the point and they said, well, what can we do? And the instruction of Peter was clear. He said unto them, repent. Repent. You've got to turn round and you've got to change your lifestyle. You're going one way, you've got to turn round and you've got to go in the opposite direction and you must never go back to the way you were living. Repentance is a demand and you cannot experience the reality of the Holy Spirit unless repentance is real. And only the Holy Ghost can prick you in the heart and until he does, it's just religion. Now repentance is a gift of God. It's not something you can do. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And in the command is the power to do so. But it comes from God, not from you. The problem is, 
Most people hide in the trees with their fig leaves on and they've got all their excuses as to why, oh, it's not my fault. You don't understand this. You don't understand that. The real issue is your sin. You chose to go against God. You rebelled against God. And you must be born again. And you must transform your life. You say, well, they're devout men. They had nothing to transform. Quite right. But they had to come to the place where the Holy Ghost so convinced them, so convicted them, that they said, what can we do? And Peter's answer, repent. I find there's a lot of people that say to me, well, they never knew a day when they were transformed. If you don't know a day where God met you by the Holy Ghost, where you were confronted with your sin by the Holy Ghost, where you were convinced through and through that there was nothing good in you and there was no hope for you, if you don't know a day in your life like that where you cried out to God and God met you by the Holy Ghost, you're not a Christian. You cannot be. Not in a biblical sense. You might be religious. You might believe all the right things, but that doesn't make you a Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. And I just happen to be a Bible believer. You must be born again. All things pass away, all things become new. Spurgeon put it this way, that great preacher, he said, well, he said, when you're born again, when someone asked him, one of his students in his lectures to students, it, someone asked him, he said, well, what about it, how do you know you're born again? He said, when a man has an electric shock, he knows he's had it. Spurgeon said, anyone who's born again, he knows. The Holy Ghost comes. He transforms you inside. And Peter said, you've got to repent. You've got to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't say you'll be baptized in the Spirit. He said you'll receive a gift of the Holy Ghost. Now the reason for that is quite clear because unless you repent and you turn from the world and you turn from the ways of the world and you turn from the values of the world you cannot receive the Spirit because the world cannot receive Him. Jesus made that quite plain. It's making a choice to live totally different from the way of the world from the way of religion, from the way of churchianity, totally transformed and making a decision. Now, I see a lot of religious people full of rebellion. The Pharisees were, the Sadducees were. You can tell a person that lives with rebellion because there's certain little attitudes inside which show it. It's called sin. They want their own little way. They don't identify it as sin. They identify it 
by justifying themselves. They'll go to the edge, the brink of what they can get away with. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did. There's a lot of people like that. They're not born again. But they're so devout and religious that they think they are. But you always can tell because you ask them one question. When was the day? You might not be able to specifically, I can't go back and tell you exactly the date because I can be honest with you and say I can't remember the date. But I can remember the day and the hour. I can remember the moment. And anyone that's truly met of God can tell you. It's such an encounter that you cannot but know. And you're not the person you were born. You've been born again from above by the Holy Ghost. And you receive that gift into your being and everything's transformed. Your spirit becomes one spirit with God's spirit and it's so, so transforming that you're not the person you were in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Transformation. That is new birth. Paul expresses it in Corinthians, Old things are passed away, all things become new, and all things are of God, who in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world unto himself. Now understand, it's got to happen. That is being baptized in the Holy Ghost, if you want to use that terminology, it's being born again. Born of water and the Spirit. You must be. You remember when Cornelius' household uh, was filled with the Holy Ghost, um, Peter recounting it, um, look at this, uh, verse 12, Peter recounting it, um, oh, well, he was up on the roof and he, he fell down and he had a vision, you know. And behold, verse 11 of, of Acts 11, And behold, immediately were three men already come unto the house where I was, I was sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit made, bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, 
then hath God also to the Gentiles granted what? Repentance unto life. Alright? You can't get into life without repentance. They didn't say he's granted the gift of the Holy Spirit, though he had. They were saying, no, this is repentance into life. They've come from death into life, and repentance was the big thing that was granted to the Gentiles. Hey, these Gentiles have transformed their lives and they've turned and the sign of the turning and true repentance is God has given them a gift of the Holy Ghost. They come into life. They're born again. You can't enter into the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You must be born again. And so the whole thing was in Scripture... New birth, baptism and the Spirit is one and the same thing. There's no biblical base for second blessing. Now you might need release in the gifts of the Spirit. Totally different. You see, when you're born, you have within you everything. As you grow up, you develop, a baby grows. You don't have to tell a baby that it's going to learn to walk. A baby just, as it grows and eats and feeds, so faculties develop. They learn balance. They learn to read. They learn to write. They learn to talk. They learn to misbehave. That's children, isn't it? It's amazing how intelligent God is. You know, he made all things well. Man likes to tinker with it and think, you know, he can get away with it. But don't ever believe that there's a better way than God's way. There never is. Really isn't. And when a baby is born, it's natural development. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. All right, they came... And God granted them repentance unto life. And that was the baptism of the Spirit. Is that clear? Now you say, well, I was taught. Well, get retaught. You want to learn what the Bible says. You see, you can't take a historical occasion and make a doctrine of it. That's what's happened with the Toronto blessing. That's what's happened with lots of things. People take an anecdotal fact and then they make a doctrine of it. That is not good theology. Theology is in the Word of God. But you can't take one historical experience because there's only two occasions on which the Holy Spirit fell in that way. One was at the day of Pentecost. The second one was when Cornelius' household was brought in. Up to them they, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. That's it. And so, you have to understand that what God was showing Peter was that the Holy Spirit and repentance unto life was given to the Gentiles. It was a gift. And when you repent, you receive a gift. Gift of the Holy Ghost. 
Is that plain? You got that? And the reason you don't receive the gift, God gives the Holy Spirit to them who obey him. And obedience is better than sacrifice. Listen here, there's nothing you can give God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because all that you have was given you by God. You can present your body as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, but don't say you're paying a price. Of course you're not. There's only one who paid a price. His name was Jesus, and he shed his precious blood for you and me. Don't ever say you pay a price. You don't pay a price. You receive a gift, and it's free. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. No one ever pays a price. If you want to know what you have to do, you have to repent, you have to believe, and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the way you know you've truly repented and believed is the Holy Ghost comes. He's a true and faithful witness. And the only reason people aren't baptized is because they haven't cleaned up their act. Huh? True repentance is a decision. What Colin was singing is right. I've made my decision. You draw a line in the sand. I'll never be the same again. That's it. I'm not going back. I'm going forward. Total decision. Impossible once you draw that line in the sand to go back. And God witnesses it by the Holy Ghost. That's why when God convinces by the Holy Ghost, a man better respond or a woman better respond. Because that's the time. When inside they know that's the time. When they're cut to the heart and they've given up all their excuses and self-justification and the Holy Ghost has got inside, that's the time. There is no other way. It's not a philosophy. It's not a set of ideals. It's God the Holy Ghost. And when a man truly turns and says, that's it, from this day, and he draws a line in the sand, that's it. The Holy Ghost will come, and they're granted repentance unto life. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit when he comes. The most important thing is repentance unto life. You've got to understand the moment that you come into life, the life in the soul, the Holy Spirit's being animates you. He sets you on fire. And when God sets you on fire, the natural thing is relationship with God and prayer. It's just a part of breathing. And you come into a relationship with God. You'll find that in Galatians chapter 4. 
When you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, these things happen. Verse 4 says this, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The one thing that I always look for in an individual who says they're baptized in the Holy Ghost or claims to be born again is you must know God as your Father. That is the first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes, when he fills you, there is a realization of the fatherhood of God. You've been adopted as a son. And from that moment on, you know your family, you know your heritage, you know who you are, you know to whom you belong, and there is never a day passes when you don't know God as your father. It transforms your whole relationship. The baptism in the Spirit is a clear indication of sonship. And the Spirit comes and he ignites your soul in a revelation, God is my Father. And you know you're a child of God, and you know whatever happens in your life, whatever you go through, you know you belong to him. You know because you know because you know. And if that isn't a reality, you're not a Christian. It's that plain. Doesn't matter. I'm not saying you're not religious. I'm not saying you don't go to church. I'm just saying you're not a Christian. In God's terms. All right? All going quiet. As a child is birth and genetically belongs to his parents, so prayer is a Christian son's vital contact with the father. There is a sense in which you know, uh, and by prayer I don't mean gabblings of requests. I'm talking about relationship and communion with God the Father. You just belong to him. And inside of yourself, you're alive, and you're alike to God, and you just know God's your Father, and you just commune with Him. Every day, every moment of every day, you're in communion with God your Father, because He is your Father, and you're His Son, and it's just a part of your life. And you can't be separated from it unless you rebel and quench the Spirit and go your own way, and then you're going to be in trouble and mighty miserable. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is, is, is true prayer. In other words, God, I'm not living for myself at all. I just want you. I want everything you want. I want to delight your heart. I want to go. If you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, that's the natural nature within you. And if you haven't got that nature within you, 
You've either walked out into sin and quenched the Spirit, or you've never been born again. A man or woman whose mind is under God's government prays as Jesus prayed to his Father. Father, I don't want my will, I want yours. That's it. And it's a delight. I delight to do thy will, O God. For to walk with thee is not grievous unto me. Why? I delight to do your will. It's a joy to go God's way. And it's a sheer misery to go your own. The misery comes because if you don't have the joy of God in your life, it's a miserable life. It really is. The Holy Spirit comes to build up your inner man. First thing that happens, you know, when a person's born again, they desire the sincere milk of the Word that they may grow thereby. There's an automatic hunger for the Word of God. I'm amazed. If someone hasn't got a hunger for the Scriptures, and the scriptures don't become alive to them, they certainly haven't been born again. That's the first thing that happens. It ignites you inside. And one of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives is words. And it's not restricted to tongues. I mean, tongues is a gift. Would to God you all speak with tongues. I speak with tongues. I thank God for the gift. But I want to tell you something. I'd rather in the church speak five words of wisdom than 10,000 in an unknown tongue. He wants us to pray. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. So you understand this. And verse 14, uh, let's take note. Say verse 12. Even so you, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, and the unknown's not there in the Greek, but there you are, uh, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. When you pray in tongues, you pray, but you're, and you're praying to God, and you're blessing God. You're not cursing devils. That is not a gift of tongues. If you think that tongues is some weapon, I've got news for you. It says when you speak in tongues, you speak to God, not unto man are not unto devils. So don't ever, ever get into the habit of thinking that somehow if there's devils around and you jabber in tongues that the devil's impressed. He's not. Total abuse of gift. Your understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. Also, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, 
seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be you children, but in understanding be you men. In other words, what Paul's saying is, look, just because you've got a gift of tongue, Paul says, stop it, Corinthians. It's not friendly to confront a man with sin. When Peter stood up and when Jesus stood up, people got real upset with him. It was confrontational. You don't win someone by telling them it's all right, doesn't matter how you live, God will accept you anyway. No, he won't. Repent. God commands all men, all men, everywhere, to repent. Is that plain? That means change your lifestyle. Means you can't live the way of the world, you can't be part of the world, you can't live by their values, you can't go their way, you've got to separate yourself. And you've got to live by the Holy Ghost as a Christian. God's values and God's word is clear. Repent. A gift of repentance unto life. And if you don't have the change in lifestyle and the change and you give up your selfishness and you live for the will of God, you're not a Christian and you'll never be baptized in the true spirit of God. Impossible. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet is the hope. When I see him, I'll be like him. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. What for? What for? That utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds and therefore I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Look, when you put on the whole armour of God what you need you need gospel preachers. You need people who speak with boldness 
won't subvert or pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, will call sinners to repentance, will make plain that lifestyle has to change. And you cannot be a Christian before lifestyle changes happen. Do not lie to people and tell them it takes time. It takes a second. Repent. Turn. Go the opposite direction. You'll receive the Holy Ghost. What do we pray for? With all perseverance. That a door of utterance may be open. That the gospel might go forth. That we might have boldness in the gospel. It's nothing to do with fighting devils and demons. It's to do with preaching. I pray in tongues. I've got to understand. Praying in tongues, firstly, I'm not speaking to people, I'm speaking to God. So if I pray in tongues, I don't need to pray with everyone around me. I go home, I pray in tongues, I pray in tongues sometimes when I'm driving my car, I pray in tongues sometimes when I'm just on my own. Secondly, such speech is not understood by the mind. When you're praying in tongues, you don't understand what you're saying. The person who listens doesn't understand what you're saying. So, no point in making yourself kind of spiritual, is there? Some people like to be spiritual. Oh. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit prays through the person's spirit. It's a form of blessing God, but what it is not, and it's only a form of blessing God, it is not some weapon to use against the devil, or, you know, when you're afraid, start jabbering in tongues and the devil will run. What are you afraid of? The Puritan Thomas Boston uh, wrote that right praying is praying in the spirit. And uh, if you turn with me to um, James 5. You remember it's talking about praying for the sick. Com verse 16, confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Then it goes on, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the word effectual there in the Greek means it's inwrought. It's wrought in you. If you haven't got the Spirit working within you and he hasn't brought that life within then your prayer will never be effective. Effectiveness in prayer is that which is inwrought by the Holy Ghost. Is that plain? It's so part of your nature. But when you pray, it's a righteous man praying. When someone's um, got troubles and they live in sin, then, you know, you come, you pray for them, 
You better have it enrolled in you. You better know victory in your life. If you don't know that, your prayer will never be effective. Won't help anyone. Prayer in the spirit does not make demands upon God. Though our prayers often do. I'm afraid there's a lot of people who are always praying and saying they're demanding from God. Don't. Thomas Boston puts it this way. Prayer in the spirit does not make demands upon God, but humbly waits and listens to God and trust God the Holy Spirit to intercede for us in keeping with God's own will and good pleasure. It's God's will and good pleasure we're about. We're not making demands on God. I'm not trying to tell God what to do. I want God to do what he wants to do and I want to join with him. It's easy being a pastor. What you do is find out what God's doing and join with him. That makes pastoring easy. Prayer enriches one spiritually. It illumines the word and it illumines the mind and it freshens and heals the body. Romans 8, verse 26. Turn to Romans 8. You find in verse 26, Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our weaknesses, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Likewise the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. It's interesting in the Greek, that word helpeth is the same word that Mary and Martha, when there was a dispute, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, um, Martha came along and said, get Mary to help us. Come on, can't you see I'm coming about with much work. Same word, helping. Get up and do something. Now the Holy Spirit's a helper. He helps us. You've got to understand that. That's what he does. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Now, it's interesting, the particular word, uh, with groanings that cannot be uttered. The word for prayer there is only used once, ever, in the whole of Scripture. And it's only used, and intercessions is only used of the Holy Spirit. It's never used of an individual, ever. And that is why only people that are full of the Holy Ghost can possibly intercede, and they can't intercede in the sense of making intercession. It's the Holy Spirit in them that intercedes with groanings which cannot be uttered. John Owen who was also a Puritan, put it this way, there is assistance promised unto believers to enable them to pray according unto the will of God. There is no assistance promised to enable any to make prayer for others. I'll read that again. I love it. John Owen. There is assistance promised unto believers to enable them to pray according unto the will of God. There is no assistance promised to enable any to make prayers for others.
That's fact. You won't find anywhere in the Bible where, where it says there is. Although by office or relation we do pray for others, but they are God's ideas. We don't ever pray our will. If God lays on your heart in his will to do something, it'll happen. When I pray for the sick, there, some people respond and come out for prayer. Some people I pray for, some people I won't pray for. I'll tell you why. I'll pray according to the will of the Father. Lots of people come up to me, they say, will you pray for me? I said, no, go and pray for yourself. I get offended. I'm not going to just say a prayer over someone that God hasn't led me to say. Why should I? What good is it going to be? None. Just religion, that. I don't like religion. Is that plain? There is no New Testament pattern of Jesus or Paul engaging in prayer evangelism. There never was. Jesus did, oh, let's pray. He never did. Praying specifically for world evangelization is not Christian. It's heathen. So beware. John 17 explains that, your, the words of Jesus. John 17 says it in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world, thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me, and I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Amazing that here's Jesus, God himself, and he said, the only people I'm praying for is the ones you've given me. Jesus said, Father, no one can come to me, except you draw them. And he told the disciples, you know, no one can come, except the Father draw them. I find the idea and notion that someone can manipulate God by their prayers highly obnoxious. That somehow, by your prayers, you're going to change God's mind, I find highly obnoxious. My God is omnipotent and almighty. I am here to obey him and to do his will. I am not called to manipulate him. And prayer is not the manipulation of God. Prayer is a submissiveness to the will of God. That's what the Greek word means. Total submissiveness to God's will. It is not me trying to get God to do what I want. Is that plain? Paul's prayers for others were twofold. A concern for their growth as Christians 
and a concern for the growth of the gospel. They're the only two prayers Paul ever prayed. He was interested in the growth of Christians and he was interested in the freedom to preach the gospel. Only those two things. He wasn't praying for world evangelism or evangelization as they now call it. Paul wanted them to bear fruit in every good work grow in their knowledge of God, to be strengthened for endurance, and to joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified them for their ultimate inheritance. Paul exhorts the believers to pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly, and those who carry the word will be rescued from evil. And you'll find that in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even it is as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. What Paul was saying, pray for us that we can get out there and preach, and pray that God will deliver us from wicked... There's always wicked men who are going to subvert the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes to reveal Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. He no more comes to reveal himself than Jesus did. There can be no new revelation by the Holy Spirit whose task is to point to what Jesus said and taught and to bring understanding. And if you go back to John 14, you'll find the scripture says so. Jesus makes it quite clear. Um, he says, um, verse 25, 14, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And Jesus does repeat it in another place. He says quite clearly, he says the Holy Spirit hasn't come to speak of himself. He's come to... What he hears me say, that's what he'll say. What he sees me do, that's what he'll do. And that's what Jesus did with the Father too. The Holy Spirit is not manifest to make himself known. He's manifest to make Jesus known. And Jesus made that quite plain. Is that clear? And that's for edification of the church. We're here to lift up Jesus. We're not here to lift up gifts. We're not here to lift up ourselves we're here to point people to Jesus Christ and what he's done he's the redeemer he's the savior we're not here uh, centered around the Holy Spirit we're here in the power of the Holy Spirit to lift up Jesus Christ and to glorify him he's the only one who redeems and the Holy Spirit brings joy Life in the Spirit is a life of prayer, a life of continuous thanksgiving, a life of joy. God sent His only begotten Son. He loved you. He redeemed you from sin, from sickness, from disease, from bondage. He's done wonderful things for you. How can you come and be unthankful and ungrateful? 
If you can't express with your whole being, your love and your thanksgiving to God, don't say you're full of the Holy Ghost. You're not. Most wonderful thing is the salvation and joy we have. Our God is a good God. And I come in, I'm just grateful to God for all he's done. I look out and I see what he's done in people's lives and I give thanks to God. There's a thankfulness for everything he is and everything is done. And nothing more wonderful than to be in the life of God. Nothing more wonderful than to know your sins forgiven. Nothing more wonderful to know that there's a God in heaven who loves you. He's on your side. He makes you more than a conqueror. And if you're miserable, you're in sin. If you haven't got that joy, you've gone out of fellowship with God and there's something wrong. It's the most wonderful thing of all. Our God is a good God. An example of which Jesus is, who in the words of um, Doddridge said, in pleasing contemplation of the success that should attend his gospel, though it was to be propagated by such weak instruments, he exceedingly rejoiced in the Spirit. Do you know Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit when he heard the disciples came back and said, Hey, uh, you know, it's wonderful, this gospel, this power. And it said he exceedingly rejoiced, did our Jesus. And he said, Hey, men can take this gospel. They might be weak instruments, but they can be effective. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to go to church? Wonderful to see God heal people. Wonderful to see God intervene in lives. Wonderful to know what he's done. I, I tell you, every time I drive in Bryce's Park and I go to see the new building, I just praise God. Wonderful! Every time I look, across at that cedar tree that's been standing there 350 years or whatever it is I look over and I say wonderful and God's given it to us wonderful I can't understand how people aren't filled with gratefulness to overflowing and when they come in it bursts out of their lives Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. William Penn said of George Fox, the great revivalist, he founded the Quaker movement, he said, Above all, he excelled in prayer, going on to define prayer as living near to the Lord. Prayer is our intimate relationship with God. Um, Marty Lloyd-Jones says that is what prayer is, an intimate relationship with God. It is not petitioning. When the Holy Ghost comes in, he unites you with God. God knows how to pray. God knows. My commune with God to find out what God wants. That's all I'm interested in. God would far rather you stop your religiosity and you got down to honesty and you started living the life right, then you made all these great pretensions. 
got to live repentance into life. That's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. The life of Jesus. I live, nevertheless, not I. For the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He lives in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Birth into life. So you can say, I'm alive in him.